Welcome back to the Foreign Policy Profcast. My name is Mark Melton, and I am the managing editor for Providence. And today we are talking with Michael Sobolik, and he is a fellow in the Indo-Pacific Studies at the American Foreign Policy Council in Washington, D.C. So first off, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on, Mark. And so we have a lot of China news going on this week in particular, but also just over the past several months. And this is a major topic. And I know that you know, Asia in general is an issue that Americans, I think, and even for people who focus on foreign policy, there's a lot of different things going on. And like Americans may know a good bit about Europe if they study foreign policy or the Middle East, but Asia is becoming much, much bigger issue. And uh, so we're going to be talking about China today. Regular Providence are likely familiar with many of the problems in Xinjiang, uh, especially how the Chinese Communist Party is erasing the culture of the Uyghur Muslims there. For years, we have heard about re-education camps that imprison millions in the region. And these have been major issues for those who advocate for international religious liberty, especially for many of the contributors at Providence. And Michael, I know you've written about uh, new revelations, including some forced sterilization. So what is going on in this region? Well, Mark, again, thanks for having me on to, to chat about all these topics. And uh, talking about Xinjiang is uh, involves really heavy uh, despicable things that are happening. So right now, uh, if you look at a map, uh, Xinjiang is China's most Western territory. It borders Central Asia. Uh, the southernmost tip of it hits some disputed territory between uh, China and India. It borders Pakistan. And it, it's at the heart of Eurasia. And what's happening inside of, uh, of this uh, territory really brings to memory some of the darkest moments of the 20th century. So uh, there's a recent report that came out from the Jamestown Foundation, and uh, a German uh, scholar, Adrian Zenz, uh, has done some uh, really in-depth research uh, to bring to light uh, really, really dark things that are going on, specifically uh, forced sterilizations, forced abortions, uh, forced birth control methods. And uh, you'll see that all this stuff is tied into the re-education camps that were begun a few years ago. So uh, China, uh, partially for uh, anti-terror reasons, which are dubious at best, uh, also for economic and geopolitical reasons, are zeroing in on the Uyghur uh, religious minority and a number of other ethnic and religious minorities in the territory as well. And they're taking steps uh, to forcibly reduce the share of their population in Xinjiang. And this region, from my understanding, it's important to the Chinese because even though it might be considered remote uh, because it's in the far west part of China, it is actually, I think, closer to Europe or parts of Europe than parts of East China. Is that correct? And it's part of their Belt and Road plan? So this is a really, really important observation you're making. So uh, historically, when you look at what actually has constituted China uh, over the past centuries... Uh, Tibet, Xinjiang, uh, even uh, Inner Mongolia, Manchuria, all of the periphery of uh, China, uh, this has not always been part of uh, China's geographical reality. So uh, 
one of the biggest historical trends, far predating the Chinese Communist Party, has been the growth and expansion of uh, China through its dynastic period and certainly uh, now under the Chinese Communist Party. So when you look at Xinjiang, its geographical proximity, as you put it, not just to Central Asia, the Middle East, but to Europe, is really important for uh, the party's Belt and Road Initiative because uh, the party is trying to create an integrated Eurasian landmass. So uh, oftentimes when readers will read about a new Belt and Road project in a country, whether it be Southeast Asia and a country like Cambodia or Saudi Arabia or Egypt in the Middle East or a European country, it's reported uh, very straight and simply as a one-off infrastructure project or investment deal. Uh, but if you zoom out and look at what the party is trying to accomplish, they're essentially building a new web and network of trade and commerce that hasn't existed there before. And Xinjiang is really important for this because it lies at the intersection of the westernmost regions of China, the Far East, and going into not just Central Asia, but connecting to the old world in Europe. So China, by doing all of this, is trying to build a new economic zone that does not include primarily the United States. So for geopolitical reasons, China needs to have absolute control over the region of Xinjiang because they need it as an economic hub for the Belt and Road Initiative. And what should the U.S. do on this issue? So uh, frankly, in the past few months, th there's been a lot of positive steps that the Trump administration has taking, uh, taken, the most recent being implementing global Magnitsky sanctions on high-ranking CCP officials responsible for the human rights atrocities. Uh, Chen Chongguo, who is also, who's a member of the China's Politburo, is also the secretary, party secretary of Xinjiang, and he was one of the individuals that the United States government designated under the Global Magnitsky Act. Uh, in addition to that, there's been good interagency cooperation, uh, which I know can the, the, the term interagency can easily puts people to sleep because it's it's not bright, shiny, or interesting, but it's, it's the true work of governance, and it really is important. And we saw this recently where a number of agencies, uh, state, commerce, treasury, all came together and warned U.S. companies that you need to be taking Xinjiang out of your supply chains because it's a matter of U.S. law that we will not import goods that were manufactured by slave labor, at full stop. Beyond that, uh, future steps that folks in Washington should consider closely uh, not just looking at individuals responsible for human rights violations, not just looking at commerce leaving Xinjiang, although both of those things are very important. Uh, Washington needs to find a way to target Xinjiang's role in the Belt and Road, because uh, the best way to get the party's attention uh, is not to stop your response at symbolic or uh, or entry-level policy responses. We need to have strategic policy options that actually hit the party where it hurts. And one way that could easily do that would be not just, to, again, not just to sanction exports from the region that were slave labor manufactured, but to sanction commerce passing through the region. Because, again, the party needs Xinjiang as a hub for commerce. And if there's a way that the United States 
United States can sanction that flow of commerce, uh, that not, will not only penalize the party in a much more intense way, it actually uh, stymies the Belt and Road project itself. I believe I heard recently or read recently that there was a shipment of hair that came uh, to the U.S. and it looked like it came from Xinjiang, if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, is, are you familiar with that? Or Yes, yes. So what happened there? What's going on? So uh, this is really good work by U.S. Customs uh, and, and Border Enforcement. It is their job, their duty to ensure that whatever comes into the United States is, is compliant with U.S. laws. And it, it is, it, it's not a matter of sanctions. It's actually a matter of uh, statute that the United States will not accept any imports that were slave labor produced. So uh, that was a dutiful enforcement of the laws that are already on the books. And it's something that we need to be incredibly vigilant at doing. And even more than that, the United States has to socialize that understanding and that commitment of enforcement amongst our friends and allies, because like, th there is a limit of our effectiveness if we're only standing alone in response to what China is doing. The more we can integrate and work with our partners in Europe, especially, uh, and throughout the Muslim world, uh, the better. And speaking about Belt and Road and our allies, uh, one of the major news issues this week is that the United Kingdom decided to ban Huawei. And the U.S. has been opposed to Huawei building 5G networks in other countries. And first off, like before we get into the U.K. decision, like what are America's concerns with Huawei? So if you listen to how... Uh, China, the Chinese Communist Party describes Huawei. It's 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 a private company, uh, not unlike companies that Americans are familiar with, like Verizon, AT and T, or European countries like Ericsson and Nokia. However, uh, in reality, uh, I think it was uh, the U.S. House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence back in 2012 or so uh, under Mike Rogers, they conducted an in-depth investigation onto, into the roots of Huawei, the history of the company, the makeup of the company, its associations, not just with the Chinese Communist Party, but with the People's Liberation Army. And the report from uh, the U.S. House of Representatives, uh, which has since been echoed by executive branch agencies, is that uh, Huawei is a, is a Chinese intelligence arm thinly veiled as a telecommunications company. It, it has all of the capabilities to track, detect, surveil information and to take that information in real time. So a practical example of this, and, and I don't want to get too deep into technology because it can get super nerdy super fast, but uh, right now most Americans use 4G networks. Any network in operation is is uh, constituted in two main uh, two main areas. You have the core of your telecommunications network, which is where all of the sensitive encrypted information gets read. Your credit card information is encrypted until it reaches the core, uh, and it's all of the queries are resolved in a secure fashion there. The edge of the network, uh, which is closer in proximity to where Americans live, where they work, uh, this is where your tablet, your phone, your computer uh, basically enters the telecommunications environment. And Huawei equipment and US 4G networks and the 4G networks around the world have been present at the edge. 
So uh, the thinking has been for a long time that as long as a network's core is secure, like, and basically meaning if there's no dubious technology, infrastructure, equipment inside of the core, then you can put whatever you want at the edge, save a ton of money on cheap Huawei equipment, and you won't have any security risks. Uh, so what's really interesting about this is uh, when the Brits were considering whether or not to uh, use Huawei equipment in a 5G network, U.S. Uh, officials, Matthew Pottinger from the National Security Council, among them, flew over to the United Kingdom and told them, look, uh, U.S. intelligence reveals in no uncertain terms that in 4G networks, if you have Huawei equipment, even at the edge of your network, even where uh, most of the secure transactions aren't being resolved, Huawei has a way to intercept encrypted uh, information flowing through their equipment and decrypt it and, and essentially track whatever is flowing towards the core. So that, that's, that's a, a lot of uh, linguistic way of basically saying, uh, even if you try to like do your best to keep Huawei equipment out of the most sensitive part of your network, it's not going to be enough because they have all the cap capabilities they need to get your information. And in a 5G network, for a variety of reasons, it'll be even easier for them to do that. So the reason this is important for the United States is because uh, in Europe, we have sensitive equities all throughout the region, uh, especially by virtue, not just of NATO, uh, but of our Five Eyes intelligence partnerships with the UK obviously being our partner in Europe, also in our own hemisphere with Canada, and then Australia and New Zealand as well. So this matters because if you have a situation, imagine a worst case scenario, and you, uh, the US is either preparing for military mobilization or uh, there's intelligence assets in the field that are moving or are about to uh, conduct an operation. Uh, in a military scenario, uh, DOD has been pretty transparent about this, that uh, by, uh, by necessity, some operations will flow over open networks. They can't put everything over classified networks. So if Huawei has their equipment uh, in a country's telecommunications infrastructure and the U.S. military sends information about a pending operation over open networks, uh, that is something that Huawei can detect before we mobilize. This is, a, on the face of it, a huge problem for U.S. national security. And this was something that I dove into in a paper that I wrote in March and, and kind of lay it out what that scenario could look like. But uh, for privacy reasons, but even for national security reasons, uh, it's a big concern. And why are other countries allowing Huawei to build these 5G networks? Is it because it's cheaper or what's the issue? So the deal with China for, for many, many years has been bring them into the global economy, reap the windfall, not just of saving a ton of money with cheap Chinese products, but reaping the benefits of accessing the Chinese market. And in doing so, hoping that that economic commerce and the socialization of China among the free world would change them politically. This certainly has not happened. If we've seen anything in the past few months in the wake of the coronavirus, it's that China's impact on the world has been so much greater than the world's impact on China has been. 
So I think you, you've had a lot of countries, the, the U.S. included, who uh, have been looking for ways to save money. And you have a company like Huawei that poses as a private company. But in reality, it's, uh, it's subsidized by the Chinese government, by the state. So when you have other companies like a Nokia or an Ericsson that are competing against Huawei, it's not truly a free market environment because you have a state-backed company posing as a private firm that are undercutting its competitors in ways that uh, Nokia, Ericsson, and others just are unable to meet. So it's it's a really it's a problem to a degree of the West's own making, and it's going to take a lot of work uh, to turn the ship around. And so the United Kingdom, like we have already mentioned, has decided to ban Huawei. Are there other countries that are going to do the same, you think, or what's next? Great question. So uh, to your point, yes, the, the United Kingdom uh, this week released their decision uh, indicating that by 2027, uh, the telecommunication networks inside of Britain will have to get rid of uh, Huawei equipment. Uh, in the meantime, uh, uh, providers will still be able to continue to use Huawei until the end of 2020. So uh, this, more than anything, shows how complicated all this stuff is because it's policymakers in Washington would love it to be as easy as snapping your fingers and Huawei completely disappearing. Uh, the fact is, a lot of their equipment is is so tightly knit into. Uh, networks that already exist. So like decoupling from Huawei or, or uh, purging systems from their equipment is going to take time, uh, but it's a step in the right direction. And as far as other countries go, Singapore recently announced uh, that they were not going to be using Huawei. Uh, other Five Eyes com uh, countries have made similar decisions as well. One of the big countries to watch right now is Germany. Germany, uh, one of, if not the most influential country within the European Union, uh, has been teetering for quite a while about a final Huawei decision. And uh, the EU recently introduced some regulations that are not necessarily binding on its members. It, it, it discourages uh, high-risk vendors inside of their networks, but it doesn't have any prohibitions on Huawei or anything. So uh, watching how Germany proceeds will be important. And a little bit ago, you had mentioned the coronavirus and COVID-19, which obviously is having a huge impact here. The very fact that we are not in my offices recording this podcast in person and we're having to do it remotely is because of all of the pandemic stuff that's been going on here that came out of Wuhan. Can you give a quick review of what China did to cover up the pandemic in its early days? Absolutely. So looking at the actions of the Chinese Communist Party from, say, uh, November or December of 2019 to where we are uh, today, July of 2020, you notice a distinct foreign movement flow. And, and it's really instructive to understand uh, how the party operates. So what began first was basically a, a hush campaign. Uh, doctors in Wuhan began to discover this novel virus and on uh, uh, WeChat message groups and, and emails and everything. Do the medical community in Wuhan began to sound the alarm. And then you had uh, 
government entities, the party coming down and say, hey, you need to be quiet about this. You need to destroy test samples. You need uh, to cease any public or even private mention that this even exists. And uh, the the big uh, face of all this is a Chinese doctor, Li Wenliang, uh, who was one of the first physicians in China to raise the alarm. And then he was uh, detained and silenced and later passed away because of the virus. So China began to try to silence, but obviously uh, silencing people doesn't stop a virus from spreading. So uh, when the issue became so big that China couldn't deny that it was there, uh, you saw the party move into a second response, a second disinformation response. Uh, If you recall February, March or so, that story that the the party began to amplify about how the, the United States Army was actually the one who brought the uh, coronavirus to Wuhan. Uh, it's it's easy for Americans to see a story like that and roll our eyes uh, and say, oh my gosh, like no, no one is going to take this seriously. Uh, but that response misses the main audience for that propaganda. Uh, China wasn't trying to convince the rest of the world that America brought the virus to uh, Wuhan that story was meant for the people of China. So, and, and the reason the party did that was because in a perfect world, the party uh, wants to work with their people uh, to push a, same, a common narrative together that protects the political uh, monopoly that the party has. If the party needs to crack down on dissidents, like we saw in Hong Kong recently, if the party needs to be incredibly aggressive to defend its political uh, monopoly, they will do so. But they would prefer uh, to do that in a cooperative way with the people. So when you have a nationalist story blaming a foreign country for a problem inside of your own country, uh, that's basically a way uh, to play on anger. And the party has historically been very good at doing this. Uh, so, but then uh, by this point, this is no, no longer just a China problem. It's a global problem. It's a global pandemic. So uh, you see probably in March going into April, the party pushing this gl- massive global scale charm offensive where uh, the party went on this big campaign to push uh, to export personal protective equipment to be cast and seen as a as a net healthcare goods provider they wanted to be seen as the source of the solution because around this time uh, america was just going into lockdowns and uh, the Europe was really struggling and, and the West was just beginning to come to grips with this. So China wanted to be seen as the savior. And uh, the reason this didn't work out in the end was because a lot of the health equipment that China was bringing overseas, uh, countries would say, wait a second, we sold you this months ago and now you're trying to sell it back to us at a profit, but you're trying to make it look like foreign aid. That, that's, that, that doesn't build goodwill with anybody. And on top of that, a lot of the equipment that China produced and they then tried to send abroad was defective. So then you have a lot of the world not only upset about China because of their failure to contain the virus, but now they're being taken advantage of. So the fourth stage that the Chinese Communist Party went into, which is where we are today, still in July, uh, the CCP has turned uh, to a very aggressive response where they're leveraging Uh, not just personal protective equipment, but access to their market to try to shape the speech and behavior of foreign governments. A great example is Australia. Uh, 
uh, Australia uh, made a public call for an international inquiry into the origins of the virus, basically to hold China accountable. Uh, the CCP responded by putting upwards of like an 80% tariff on Australia's barley exports. And you saw other uh, countries, uh, European countries, begin to upgrade their relations with Taiwan. And in response, China would say, oh, do you still want personal protective equipment or not? So th th there's a lot of uh, leveraging and aggressive action that the party has taken. And um, it's it's interesting because the the, res the initial response of the CCP was to silence their own people. Now, uh, months later, the party is trying to silence any attempt to hold it accountable. And it's this this arc of uh, the party where uh, they were unable to end this on beneficial terms. So now they're going uh, to further degrees, even if it if it's uh, aggressive or loses them some reputation. Like they they are in an all out push uh, to defend uh, to defend the party's integrity and, and to defend their political monopoly. Well, two questions I have. So first, like this misinformation campaign, you mentioned that it's mostly targeted toward the Chinese population. Are there other populations globally that are taking it seriously? Because I think I've heard some people who have from other countries who have kind of latched on to this idea that the U.S. brought it to Wuhan through, uh, I believe the U.S. military, you said. And so are there other countries that are doing this? And then second off, like, what should the U.S. do in response to this? Yeah. So first off, I've I've been keeping an eye out to see if other countries began to mimic or if specific diplomats began to mimic that talking point about the U.S. Army. Uh, I haven't seen a whole lot of it. And actually, it's really interesting. Uh, scrolling uh, for, for whatever reason, I was scrolling through uh, Twitter timelines today and I noticed that a tweet uh, from a Chinese diplomat months ago pushing this propaganda point had been deleted. So I, I'm not, you don't hear the party talking about that specific push as much today. Uh, so again, I, I really do see that story of the army bringing it to China as more for internal reasons than external reasons. But what you do see right now uh, are some countries doubling down on relations with China, even after everything that's happened, like Iran, for instance, uh, announced some big economic deals with China just this week. And one of China's biggest economic, uh, or not economic, uh, diplomatic investments, Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, and even um, uh, Egypt and others, uh, China is doing everything it's can to maintain goodwill with those uh, countries. And even in the Middle East, you see uh, Muslim country, Muslim majority, uh, uh, majority countries defending what China is doing to Muslims in Xinjiang. So uh, this whole uh, this whole episode we're all living through with the coronavirus is revealing a lot about geopolitics. And uh, we're, we're nowhere near where we were during the Cold War with like a Western bloc and an Eastern bloc because the world is so much more integrated economically now than we were then. But uh, we are learning a lot about uh, nations that are still comfortable, not just trading with China, but partnering with China as a friend and an ally. And uh, it's, it's a development that, um, that even after all that China has done, uh, they still have a number of countries that are, are willing to hold common cause with them. And, and uh, to your second question, 
Now, what should the United States do? One of the simplest things is to, is to step back and ask a question. Why is it that the CCP is so afraid of the free flow of information? Because when you look at that four-part arc story that we just discussed, the common thread through it all is the party's ongoing attempt to control uh, what is known, what is discussed, uh, what is perceived as truth. And this is a story that is uh, endemic, not just throughout the party's history since 1949, but in any dictatorship or any authoritarian regime. So one of the best ways that the U.S. can capitalize on this is to continue in any way we can to work with uh, non-governmental organizations to empower Chinese citizens to either circumvent or penetrate the firewall censorship in their own country. China's internet dominance within uh, the PRC is uh, one of the sine qua non of what sovereignty means to the party. They have to control the internet. Uh, the United States needs to look at that and realize that this is a weakness and a vulnerability that the party has, and we should double down on any investments or creative ideas we have to help the Chinese people break through that. So recently on the Provcast, I spoke with Olivia Enos about the situation in Hong Kong and the Chinese Communist Party passing a new national security law there that threatens the democracy movement there. Um, this effectively ends the one country, two systems arrangement. And as you were mentioned earlier of how you know China through its Belt and Road and through its other negotiations there is create like developing relations with these other countries that has survived, even though the pandemic uh, would have might have threatened it. But the one of the things I've noticed with the Hong Kong is the West, many countries in the West, United States and others are condemning China, whereas other countries are not condemning it. And there seems to be a, a correlation between whether they have Belt and Road uh, programs in their countries and uh, how they respond to Hong Kong. So first off, my first question is, is there any truth to that? Do we see a correlation between the Belt and Road and how other nations are treating the Hong Kong situation? And what have been the developments here? And uh, I have one more question, but I'll let you kind of take those first. The Belt and Road is, is such an insidious foreign policy tool that the party has because the party has the ability with a massive amounts of uh, foreign currency reserves uh, and uh, money that they're able to offer as investment that they can uh, offer investment deals or infrastructure projects uh, at a massive scale that dwarf the international community's ability to match or to meet. So when you have a foreign government that is choosing between significant economic growth inside of their own country through partnership with China versus condemning China for human rights abuses, uh, it is not lost on them that they cannot do both of those things at the same time. And, and if you track the uh, countries who have called China out versus those who haven't, uh, figuring out whether or not they're Belt and Road recipients or Belt and Road partners is a really quick way to find out where they're going to stand on human rights. What are some of the developments that have occurred over the last month on this issue? So with Hong Kong, the things truly began, the tide really began to turn when the party announced national security legislation for uh the island city. And this is, uh, that was a, uh, a bombshell because for decades, 
the party had pushed the government in Hong Kong to do this. And if you look at Hong Kong's basic law, uh, they are obligated to do so. But the reason they haven't is because whenever any Hong Kong government would try to introduce national security legislation, uh, it would be met with stiff resistance from the Hong Kong people. And and it, it, I think it's kind of helpful to actually unpack what national security legislation means, because in the context of America, we hear that and we think of, oh, that must be a bill that authorizes uh, like military activities or, or stuff like that. With in, in the Chinese context, it's much different. Uh, the specific terms that the party uses to define national security are immensely broad. So concepts of secessionism, uh, splitism, stuff like that, like weird words that like Americans haven't thought of secessionism since the 19th century with our civil war. But in, in the Chinese context, uh, secessionism is interpreted as any attempt uh, to talk about a political reality that does not include the Chinese Communist Party or even talk about political reform within the current system. So uh, national security legislation is essentially legislation limiting free speech, limiting political debate. And this is an, a violation of the high degree of autonomy that Hong Kong was guaranteed because uh, when the British handed over Hong Kong back to China in 1997, it was done so under the expectation that when it came to matters of self-governance in domestic matters, Hong Kong would have its own legal system, its own political system. So uh, the national security legislation push changed everything. And, and shortly thereafter, President Trump held his Rose Garden press conference in late May uh, and said that the United States... Uh, was uh, t undertaking serious reviews about its treatment with Hong Kong. And this was around the same time that Secretary of State Mike, Mike Pompeo uh, decertified, or rather was unable to cert certify that Hong Kong was actually autonomous from China. And, and since then, China's rubber stamp legislature passed the bill uh, and then uh, at this point, it's anyone's guess, but uh, I would I would venture that the United States has more uh, actions forthcoming in here. So what is the U.S. going to do next on this issue? It's a great question. So uh, a number of things are likely. Uh, one, uh, there's a big sanctions bill. Uh, I believe it's called the Hong Kong Autonomy Act that's uh, just recently passed both houses of Congress. As of today, it's on the president's desk. Uh, that would sanction Chinese financial centers uh, and individuals that were responsible uh, for undermining Hong Kong's autonomy. Uh, those sanctions, if implemented, would be uh, severe uh, and directed at Chinese banks. So that, that's one option that the United States uh, could take. Uh, another that's gotten a lot of attention uh, is another piece of legislation. I think it's called the Hong Kong Safe Harbor Act. And that's essentially a push to help Chinese uh, or rather Hong Kong dissidents leave Hong Kong and come to China because the, the Hong Kong is simply not a safe place uh, for the political activity uh, of those people anymore. So the, the question there is, will the Chinese Communist Party let them leave Hong Kong? Uh, I'm sadly skeptical about the likelihood of that. Yeah, we saw Great Britain make a similar announcement that they would allow uh, a, a number of Hong Kongers to come to the UK and even have a path to citizenship. And then uh, the China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs basically said, in, in so many words, 
we will not let them depart from Hong Kong. So I think the United States is still reviewing a number of steps, but I, I would watch the space closely and expect to see a lot of movement in the next few weeks and months. One last issue I want to cover uh, because it's a big news item for this week, but I also want to make sure that I'm respectful of your time. But just kind of the U.S. this week announced that it would not recognize China's claims to offshore offshore resources in the South China Sea. And of course, this is a you know big deal because a third of global maritime trade moves through these waters. And you know China has claimed these waters through the Nine Dash Line and so forth. But I'm not sure if any other countries actually recognize those claims. So my first question, or kind of put these all together, like why hadn't the U.S. announced that it didn't recognize these claims earlier? And are there other countries that uh, might accept China's claims that they have the right to these uh, resources. So it's it's funny when I when I saw the report uh, the other day, I had the exact same question you had of, man, this really feels like something we should have done a while ago. And I think the um, I think the explanation for it is is pretty simple. China began to push in the South China Sea around 2012, 2013. and around that time, uh, the Obama administration was its top foreign policy priority was the Iran nuclear deal. And they needed China's cooperation to get that deal because it was it had to go through the UN Security Council with China as a permanent member. So for many, many years, the Obama administration's China policy uh, was subservient to their Iran policy. And the big China initiatives that President Obama was pushing, like the climate agreement, uh, made it difficult for him to be politically confrontational with the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, to President Obama's credit, uh, his Department of Defense began to take a, a more uh, concerted uh, and somewhat assertive actions in the South China Sea uh, near the end of his second term. Uh, but it certainly didn't rise anywhere close to the level of the response that the United States needed to have. And I think one of the reasons that you saw a number of countries, the Philippines being one, uh, really cozy up to China over the past few years, even as their mar maritime claims were being challenged by China, is because the United States hasn't really been offering a whole lot of countervailing reassurance or confrontation to what China has been doing. But this announcement uh, now is, is really important for one main reason. A lot of countries in Southeast Asia, and frankly, for that matter, in Europe, the Middle East, in a lot of key regions in the globe, a lot of countries are caught between uh, the defense relationship they have with the United States and the economic relationship they have with China. And uh, as long as we have been hesitant to confront China or compete with China in a strategic way, it's, it's made a lot of countries feel frozen between Washington and Beijing. Uh, with the United States openly opposing uh, China's excessive claims in the South China Sea, uh, I see it hopefully as a prelude of more things to come. Uh, but for, for now, diplomatically, it certainly means that uh, it frees up other countries uh, to follow Wash in the wake of Washington's announcement and begin to announce their own um, uh, issues with the sovereignty claims that may or may not happen. But I, I think in the long term, 
the more impactful thing and something that we should watch closely is the nature of, of military movement and exercises of the United States within these waters. Uh, because China uh, wants to have control over the air, sea, and under the sea, the entirety of the South China Sea. Uh, the, the United States is going to have to follow this up uh, with dedicated patrols, maybe even more regular or common than we have been doing up until now, and hopefully move in the direction of bilateral or multilateral exercises in these waters with other countries that China is trying to box out. Uh, so it's it's hopefully a prelude of more things to come, uh, but it's uh, I'd file it under the category of better late than never. Well, Michael, thank you so much for coming on. I know there's a lot more that we could talk about, and we'll have to continue that conversation later. But again, thank you so much for joining us on the Foreign Policy Profcast. Hey, it's my pleasure, Mark. Thanks again for having me. 